All right, so scripture reading tonight is uh, Genesis 21. If you'll take a look at that, you can find it in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, Finally, we get to the part of the story of Abraham where the promise of a son through Sarah is fulfilled. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The promise is kept. And because the promise is kept, God's people are called to live um, uh, live as promise keepers as well. So let's look together. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the uh, water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Pharaoh, or said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me, here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my descendants, or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me. And with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. 
Therefore the name of the place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. All right, so the promise has been kept. But I want you to notice uh, how long it took for that promise to be kept, first off. Uh, there in, in verse 1 and 2, how old does it say Abraham was? Or verse 5, actually. How old is Abraham when Isaac's born? 100 years old. Now, if you'll real quick go back into Genesis chapter 12. How old was Abraham when God first called him out of Haran to go into the land of Canaan? Anybody know? Chapter 12, verse 4. Yeah, seven, 75 years old he was. So 75 is when he was first called by God to go into the land. 100 is when he finally had this boy that God had been talking about now for 25 years. Now, you know, think about 25 years. Is that a long time, do you think? Especially is it a long time to wait on something? That probably when you were 75, even when God first told it to you, you thought, oh, I'm a little too old for it to happen. Even at 75, not to mention as the years kept ticking and he kept getting older and older and older, it probably seemed more and more impossible. And yet, here it is. God has been working on Abraham's life, trying to convince him that God is able to do simply anything that he promises. There is no limit to what God can do. If God says it, you can trust it because God is capable of it. And here at 100 years old, Sarah actually has a child. They name him Isaac. The promise is kept. But I want you to see three things tonight. If you'll look at your bulletin. When God keeps the promise, he begins to lead Abraham in a life of faithfulness, okay? And this is always the case. We, we kind of started hinting at this this morning in, in the book of Mark that when God saves you, he saves you on the basis of promise and grace and all his work, not your work. But when he saves you by grace, he then asks of you your whole life, right? He asks of you to be completely faithful to him and to others in the same way that he has been faithful to you. Uh, and that's what God is wanting to show Abraham here. And if you look at your bulletin, there are three ways that he's called to do that. First of all, he's called to be faithful back to God by rejoicing and obeying. Second, he's called to be faithful within his own family by separating when the time is necessary to do so. And then lastly, he's called to be faithful in the world uh, by making and pursuing peace even with the Philistines who are not anywhere near a part of the community of faith, okay? And from each of those, we're going to learn a lesson because we too are called to be faithful to God, we're called to be faithful within the church family, and we're called to be faithful out in the world as the people of the promise-keeping God. Y'all got where we're going? Let's go there. First of all, we got to be faithful to God by rejoicing and obeying His Word. Did you notice there in uh, verses 1 through 7, how much of an emphasis the story is laying on the fact that this is happening exactly as God said it would happen. Uh, what are some of the phrases there in verses 1 to 7 that, 
that highlight that. This is exactly as God said it would happen. What are some of those phrases? Yeah, he visited Sarah as he had said. Yep. What's another one? As God had commanded, Abraham did. What else? He did to Sarah as he had promised. Yep. Then verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. You see, I mean, it's saying it over and over again that God has given a word and the boy Isaac was the result of the word. The boy Isaac was a product of the word of God. Uh, when Abraham and Sarah looked at that boy, they were looking at the proof that God does what he says he'll do, even against all the odds, right? Now, they've waited 25 years for God to do what he said he would do. How would you describe their reaction once it happened, based on verses 1 to 7? How do Abraham and Sarah react to God's fulfillment of his word? Yeah. Don't you get that sense? I mean, it's not that there are many details given, but it's almost like the very few details were given, you can almost feel the joy. I mean, how many times is the word laughter thrown out in a good way in verses 1 through 7? Even the boy's name, Isaac, of course, means laughter. I mean, they're just giddy with joy. Now, we'll see in just a minute there are different ways of laughing or different reasons for laughing. Some of them aren't good. Some of them are good. Uh, I remember Sarah, when she first laughed about this, it was a bad thing, you know. Uh, It was a laughter of, yeah, right, that will never happen. I can't believe it. I'm too old. I'll never have a child. Uh, And we'll see in just a moment, uh, Ishmael, when he laughs in verse um, 8 or 9, that's not a good laughter either. That's a laughter of mockery, of cynicism and, you know, sort of uh, sarcasm. But here in verses 1 to 7, Sarah's Laughter of unbelief has suddenly matured and ripened into a laughter of overwhelming joy that God, God actually did it. He actually did it. How crazy it is. I had a baby. Uh, this is Sarah's first baby. She never had a baby before. Sarah's 10 years behind Abraham. She's 90 years old when she has the baby. There's a lot to laugh about there. And I'm sure there was a lot of joy in Sarah's heart to know that even though through all that laughter, God had been dependable. They, we, we've already seen how they've gone, they went through many ups and downs in that whole process of depending on God. Many ups and downs. Lots of really low downs. And here it all kind of breaks like a cloud over their heads and they're just dancing in a rainfall of laughter. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Amazing what's going on. But you also see something else besides the joy, besides the overwhelming excitement. You also see a very careful obedience. Uh, Abraham does exactly as God commanded him to do, verse 4. Two ways. First of all, he named the boy Isaac. Which, you know, actually, you know, to to tell a, a father to name the child a certain thing in this culture was 
would not have been received well by most men. This is an extremely patriarchal society, and naming was an extremely powerful thing. It was, to name someone was essentially to say, I own them. They are mine. I, I possess them. And so in this culture, it's no, you know, it's no uh, secret that men possess the power of naming, and they weren't going to let anyone name their children. And yet, consistently in the Bible, isn't it funny that God is always going to men and saying, oh, by the way, name them this. I'm going to name them, and you just do what I tell you to do. And it takes faith, and it might not seem that way to us, because we don't have all that hang-up about naming. Usually we just name children what sounds good, or what their people in the family were named. We don't usually have that same kind of possessiveness when it comes to the name. And we certainly don't have anything about the dad is the one that names. If anything now, it's probably the other way around. Mama better be happy about the name today, right? Things have shifted quite a bit about that. But back then, it took a lot of faith for a man to say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And he did it. He named his son Isaac. He named him Laughter. And then secondly, he circumcised the boy on eight days. When he was eight days old, he circumcised Isaac, which you remember, it was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and all of his children after him. And so from this, we get a couple of things that are extremely important. If we're going to be a people of a God who keeps his promises, we have to learn how to cultivate joy when we hear God's word and obedience to what we've heard. Those are two main things that we've got to fight for in our lives every day, joy and obedience. Now, I use the word fight for them. Why do you think... It's sometimes a fight to be joyful and obedient to God's word. Why is it a struggle? Yeah, because, well, he asks us to do hard things. Yep, we don't actually want to. What else? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, think about, think about joy in particular. Why is joy a struggle so often? Particularly joy in the Lord. Yeah. That's right. Yep, we're divided. Yeah, we're, we're giving our heart to other things, trying to find joy from those things rather than God. Yep, that's right. Any other thoughts? That's a good one. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. N- uh, negativity is just more acceptable. You know, if if you're the if you're the one guy or girl at work that doesn't complain, you know, you probably will be more marked as an oddball than you will as a hero, you know. To join with a complaint is far more socially acceptable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. There is the distinction, right, between 
joy and happiness, um, which I, I agree with everything Clint said. I'm just repeating it mainly for the recording. I've been told that nobody can hear what y'all say. So, <laughs> so he's saying there's a difference between joy and happiness, which is very true. Joy is a more settled, very deep level, almost a cultivated state of being versus happiness, which is more of a, it happens to you more than you cultivate it. Um, yeah. I'm happy because X happened to me just now versus I have joy because I know this is true and God has told me this and I'm choosing to live on the basis of this rather than what's happening to me. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Did God really say? Yeah. Many reasons why joy in particular is a struggle. Uh, I've always been struck by the fact that the Bible commands joy. God commands joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I think the reason why is along the lines of what Clint was saying. If joy in the Bible is just what we think of as happiness, it doesn't make any sense to command it because you, don't, you can't make yourself happy, right? You can't, you can't actually engineer emotional states. that They, they kind of just are as they are as they come to you, you know? But if joy is a settled hope and conviction on something God has done or said, you can cultivate that. And it, that can be commanded. Uh, you can actually fail to settle your heart upon God and instead turn and settle your heart on other things. And so God is consistently saying, rejoice in me, rejoice in me, be joyful, uh, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, because those are things that we actually have some decision, some choice in cultivating in our lives, you know? We have an agency that, that can produce real joy. Uh, and joy will look different in different people, uh, of course. You know, again, joy is not just happy, clappy, smiling all the time necessarily. Joy can also coexist, I believe, with tears. Uh, joy can coexist with a broken heart um, because joy is a settled commitment to what God has said or done. And so the Bible commands joy. And here, after all this time, Abraham and Sarah are finally learning what it is to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, all along, God had said that they were going to have a child, and they doubted it and tried other schemes, and they never had joy. But after all that trial and error, they had finally learned, when we hope in the Lord, there is joy, and therefore we can stake our claim on joy. It's no secret that in the next chapter... Abraham is willing to offer his son as a sacrifice, you know, showing you he now understands. That chapter is the chapter that shows Abraham has been matured because he knows literally no matter what, God is going to keep his promise. Even if I were to kill my son because God told me to, he'll raise him from the dead. He will make sure that everything works out. You know, despite what I see, despite my circumstances and my doubts. Well, along with a joy in the Lord also comes obedience to the Lord. And you've got to fight for that, too. You have to fight to obey God and his commands because a lot of times he commands us to do things we don't want to, which is why cultivating joy is such an important part of obedience. Uh, the joyful person is more eager to do the thing that he or she is joyful about than the unjoyful person. And so when you happy, I mean, George Mueller, do you know that name? 
uh, and he, he was a very, well, I guess the only word for it is saintly man who operated um, orphanages in England. And he said that every day he would get up and spend the first couple of hours of his day early in the morning before all the work that he did, happying his heart in the Lord is the way he put it, which I've always loved that way of thinking about it. Um, and he was a man of great um, work and action. I mean, he cared for tens of thousands of orphans in his lifetime. That's a lot of orphans. And so he was a busy man, and yet he woke up, spent the first couple of hours every day happying his heart in God. And he said sometimes it took longer than others, and he would never leave trying until he had happied his heart. Because he knew he wouldn't be able to get any of his work done if he wasn't happy in God. That's kind of what we're talking about here, right? If we're a people of a God who keeps even outlandish promises, like a 90- and 100-year-old having a baby, we ought to be a people who know how to cultivate true happiness, true joy in God, which fuels obedience to God's Word no matter what. All right? Are you joyful? Are you pursuing joy? He commands it. Secondly, uh, Abraham is now called in verses 8 through uh, 21 to do something very difficult. Uh, he has to separate from some of the people in his own family in order to maintain faithfulness to God. Uh, this is a, a kind of a tragic story, but one that I think I'm going to try to show you is, was a necessary thing for Abraham. Uh, there in verse 8, it says, uh, as Isaac grew, he was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast. He threw a party for his son on the day that he was weaned. And uh, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian. He's not named here, but this is Ishmael. He saw him laughing. Same word used up in you know, verse 3 and 4 about Sarah, Sarah laughing and Abraham laughing, but used in a very different way here. Uh, the footnote in the ESV says laughing in mockery, which is more along the lines of what the story is trying to say. He was mocking the family for their faith in God. And Sarah, who uh, often has appeared in these stories as the no-nonsense person, says, uh, cast out the slave woman with her son, verse 10, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And it says the thing was very displeasing to Abraham because he felt bad for Ishmael. He felt bad about his other son because that really was his son, even though it wasn't Sarah's. And then the surprising thing about the story is how God comes back to Abraham and basically backs Sarah up. Okay? This is different than earlier. You might recall several weeks ago we talked about the time when Sarah drove Hagar out out of anger when she was still pregnant with Ishmael. And God was not in favor of that. God sent an angel to meet Hagar. He protected her and he brought her back into the family. Because that was not an appropriate separation. That was just Sarah being jealous and upset, right? Here, however, God says, do whatever Sarah says because she's dead right. She's right. This has to happen. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael must leave the family. And as hard as that is, know that I'm going to take care of them too in a different way, but I'm going to take care of them. But the ways have to part because my promises, my covenant can only be inherited by the faithful people, by Isaac and by his descendants, not by Ishmael. 
Okay? What's going on here? Well, church discipline is going on here. Uh, <laughs> to, to put it slightly, you know, maybe an anachronistically, you know, obviously this is just a family at this point. But at this point, the church is a family. The only church there is on earth is Abraham and his household. And just like it says throughout the Bible, there comes a time when unbelief in the church must be met with the discipline of the church. And there must be a separation between those in the church who claim to believe and really don't and those who claim to believe and really do. And if there is never any kind of discipline like that, then God's, God's plan to, uh, to give his promises over to his people will be greatly hindered and short-circuited. Uh, for example, think about what if Isaac, the mocker of the promise, had been allowed to stay in the family? Or not, not Isaac, Ishmael. What if he had been allowed to stay in the family? What might have happened down the line? Yep, fa family divided. Some of the household servants may have gone with Team Ishmael. Some had may have gone with Team Isaac. Maybe it would turned into a Cain and Abel situation. And uh, Ishmael kills Isaac or, you know, whatever. Lots of different things could have happened that a separation, though painful, nevertheless was necessary and needed to be carried out uh, in order to preserve the peace and the purity of the family. That's why I say this is like church discipline. Um, look over, for example, if you'll go to the New Testament, I'll try to show you a New Testament interpretation of this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 9 to 13. Everybody got it? Look at it. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth and he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world altogether. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom, are, whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy, Purge the evil person from among you. Um, that is a classic sort of statement of what church discipline is about. Uh, people are a part of God's community by faith. And we as humans obviously can't see into each other's heart whether real faith is there. But the way a person lives often manifests whether it is or whether it isn't. And sometimes there comes a time where the, the, um, the steady, repeated, unrepentant rebellion against God becomes so obvious that it's the duty of the church or somebody in the church. In Abraham's case, it was his job because he was the patriarch of the family to put the person who was unbelieving outside the, the fold in order to preserve the purity of the whole and to give honor and glory to God. 
church discipline. Um, for Abraham, this was painful because it was his very own son. And, you know, it's not just Abraham, but I think it's always painful for us, too. It's never an, an easy thing or never something that we should ever do with glee or happiness to, to set someone out of the church or to rebuke someone for their behavior within the church. But it is nevertheless necessary, even though painful. Separation is sometimes the only answer to these things. Uh, it's part of being the people of a promise-keeping God. Think about it. If God speaks all his word, every word of the Bible is his word, and if God backs it all up and believes it all and keeps it all every single time, then ought we not to have a similar zeal for the words that are written there? All the way to the point that we're willing to actually enforce them by our commitment to each other. Right? Any thoughts? I know that's, a, that's a, quite a topic to throw out there, but I think it's very much in the Abraham story. Any, any thoughts or questions about that? Everybody following what I was saying there? Yeah. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. I would say the first one, not the second one. So if y'all didn't hear, yeah, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 refers to those who continue to claim to be Christians and continue to claim a part, being a part of the church, who nevertheless, by their life, betray that claim and will not listen to calls from the, the word or the church to turn away from, from their, either their, whether it's bad behavior or whether it's bad belief, you know, either one. Um, that's, Paul says those are the, that's the people that need church discipline. The person that doesn't claim to be a Christian by, by nature can't have church discipline. Why? Because they're not part of the church, right? And the point of church discipline is the purity of the church, number one, and the honor of God. But then number two, it's, the, it's actually the reclaiming of a wondering and, and perhaps a lost brother or sister who is just straying, we hope that they're just straying and will come back uh, once they recognize the seriousness of their situation. Uh, but if, if people are allowed to just to be in the church and just live however they want to live, believe however they want to believe with no discipline ever about anything, then how will anyone ever recognize the seriousness of mishandling God's word? Um, that's the point Paul's making. Uh, so he says, like, if I'm not telling you to not associate with sinners in the world because then you would literally have to take a rocket to the moon and live there. And even then you'd have to look at yourself in the mirror. Um, but he's saying in the church we have a different standard and uh, the community of faith is responsible um, to ensure that everyone is living in step with the claim that we're making about what we believe, you know. So, hopefully that answers your question, Drew. 
Uh, again, and this is also not saying that you don't associate with people who sin, commit sins in the church. This is saying you don't associate or, or you cast out from the church those who sin without repentance. There's a big difference there. So simply committing a sin does not mean you get kicked out of the church. But committing sin with flagrant you know, lack of repentance, that is actually a, a way to incur loving but yet nevertheless firm church discipline. There's no sense here in which Abraham sent away Hagar and Sarah with anything but well wishes, love, prayers. I mean, he packs their bags for them with water and all kinds of stuff. Uh, this is a peaceful thing. Uh, they get lost in the desert, but God shows up and provides and shows them water, and they, they make it to where they need to go. And Ishmael starts a family, and he becomes an extremely successful nation. And as we've noted before, there are Ishmael's descendants today who are full members of the kingdom of heaven you know, in this world, which is amazing. Um, so this is not like a statement of we hate or don't love people, but it is a statement of the community of faith is unique in all the world. It's not like any other family or any other social organization. The community of faith is about faithfulness to God. And so when faithfulness to God is refused, then it makes sense that that person would be refused admission into the community of faith. And that was the case with Ishmael. Um, you know, somehow they knew that Ishmael's laughter was a laughter of mockery. Somehow they knew that Ishmael had a heart of unbelief. You can imagine, you know, probably use your imagination to figure out how that might have been. Uh, it's also important to note, uh, even though it seems like Hagar still treats Ishmael as if he's a little child, <laughs> uh, Ishmael's 13 years old, you know, at this point, or, or possibly 14, depending on how you count the weaning time. It could even be older than that, because uh, sometimes weaning took a long time back then. People, um, you know, breastfed for quite a longer than we do today back in the ancient Near East. And so he could even be older than 13 and 14. So he's, he's, not, a, he's not a child, you know. He, he's a young man who now can take responsibility for his own actions, and the fact is he just does not believe God's promises. And he demonstrates that, so... So he can't stay there because God has promised this family his blessings based on faith. Make sense? All right. Now, why am I bringing that up? Well, it's there. That's number one reason. But number two, uh, it's important for us to understand these things, to know that as a church member, you know, you have a responsibility to take these things seriously and to watch over your own life and to help encourage your brothers and sisters to be true to the covenant that God has made with us. Um, you know, the church is not merely a social club. The church isn't just a friendly, fun place to go for spiritual help. Uh, the church is God's covenant community on the earth, and um, there are God's commandments and rules that, that direct how we relate to one another and how we relate to him, most of all. And so, let's look at the third thing uh, before we run out of time. Uh, Abraham uh, is called to act in a certain way towards the outside world. Um, so we kind of saw it even with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Within the church, we are to exercise discipline against unbelief and disobedience. But in terms of our relationship to the world, we're not to separate from people just because they're sinners, because everybody's a sinner. We are to seek to live at peace as much as we can with the community around us. 
Uh, those who are the people of a promise-keeping God should be a peace-seeking people. And notice there in verse 22 how Abraham in three different ways pursues peace with the Philistines. The first way, you see it there in verse 22, is he responds to Abimelech's request for peace by making a treaty with Abimelech. So Abimelech comes to Abraham and asks Abraham, Abraham, swear with me, swear to me today, verse 23, that you won't deal falsely with me or with my descendants. Swear that you'll be true to me. And uh, again, this is another example of what we saw last week, how sometimes we get outplayed by the rookie and the unbeliever uh, kind of outpaces our obedience or our thoughts towards the things of God. And so here it's Abimelech who brings up peace to Abraham rather than the other way around. And so Abraham says, yes, I'll do it. And he swears the treaty, verse 24, I will swear this treaty with you. And then the second way he does it is he confronts Abimelech when the peace has been breached. But he confronts him in a way that is seeking to restore the peace rather than just to simply raise Cain, as we might say. Uh, Look at verse 25. Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So even though they had this treaty, Abimelech's people had stolen one of Abraham's wells, which was a big deal, right? They were in the middle of a desert, and the only way to get water is to dig really deep in the ground and get the water from a well. And so when uh, Abimelech stole Abraham's well, his sheep, his oxen, his people kind of were without one of the basic necessities of life. And so Abraham comes to Abimelech and he confronts him. But notice how he confronts him. He confronts him with a bid for peace. He says, um, you did not tell, or excuse me, Abimelech says, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't tell me. I've only heard of it now. And so it says, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. So Abraham came to complain, but he came with sheep and oxen. To already ready to make peace, which is a great model for us, you know. Uh, anytime the world, so to speak, uh, people who aren't believers are seeking peace with us, we ought to be 100% ready to grant it. And anytime that peace is broken between us and our unbelieving neighbors, we ought to come with all that we need to come with to reconcile the relationship. Our obligations to forgive don't just extend within the Christian family. They go outward outside the Christian family. Now, it might have happened. Maybe Abimelech, when when Abraham brought those sheep, maybe Abimelech said, no way, I'm not doing it. I'm taking the well, and I hate you, and I'm ripping up our treaty, you know? And that could have happened. Uh, What do you think Abraham should have done in that situation, had that happened? Gotten an army and... No. Uh, you know, David tended to do things that way. We'll get, you know, maybe one day we'll get to David's life, but Abraham probably shouldn't do it that way. He probably should instead kind of back away. And, and because peace is one of the greatest values of the Bible, uh, especially when it comes to God's people relating to those outside the community. Remember, our whole goal with those outside the community is to get them into the community. <laughs> to show them the glory of God and his grace and to get them to become a part of our family. And so uh, we ought not to be out there stirring up trouble and causing unnecessary conflicts with people, even if they're completely pagan and they disagree with us on every single issue. 
we still ought to try everything we can do to make peace. Well, those are the first two things he did. Uh, he, he came willing to um, honor Abimelech's request. He came to confront, but with sheep and oxen, to make a deal. And then the final thing he did is he went ahead and secured future peace. And so he took the seven lambs and he uh, sacrificed them there. And they again swore another oath and made another covenant that uh, this well really was a well that Abraham had dug and that Abimelech's people were never going to steal it again and Abraham's people weren't going to steal any of Abimelech's stuff. And So Abraham secured a future peace. He didn't just repair the peace that had been broken. He secured peace in years to come. And so in all of this, what you see is what Jesus was talking about when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you remember why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers? Matthew 5. You know how in the Beatitudes he always says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's the blessed are the peacemakers for? What's the for? Do you remember? It's Bible quiz time. If you want to look it up, it's Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers for... They shall be called sons of God. Somebody translate for us. What does that mean? They shall be called sons of God. That's right. Heirs of Christ. What else? Why would they be called sons of God? Why is someone who wants to make peace a son of God? They look like God. Because God makes peace. God makes peace even when it's very, very, very costly. And someone might say, well, wait a minute, though. Abraham's making peace with Abimelech, but he can't even make peace with his own son Ishmael. What's going on there? Well, remember, there's a difference between how we make peace with fellow brothers and sisters and how we make peace with pagans. You make peace with a pagan by agreeing to cohabitate and coexist and live together peacefully in the same place. But with a brother and sister in Christ, the only way to make peace is to seek to reconcile them to God. And the only way to do that is to speak the truth to them. The only way to do that is to stand for the truth by drawing a firm line against everything that doesn't match the truth. You know? And so church discipline is not at odds with peace. Actually, the whole point of church discipline is that peace might be restored. But for a Christian, someone who's in covenant with God, peace can't be re restored unless there's a return back to faith. Unless there's a return back to belief in the covenant promises of God. Uh, Abimelech doesn't know all of that. He's not in all that yet. And so Abraham is able to coexist with him even though there's many things in Abimelech's life that are wrong. And so, this is a great lesson. Within the church, we have high standards for one another, and we ought to call one another to glory. We ought to call one another to the highest of God's standards. In the world sometimes, it's, it's necessary for us to just live and let live, you know? Uh, it's not necessarily the Christian calling to go around to everybody in the world telling them all the things they do that are wrong and why they should feel bad about it and guilty about it. Um, that, that's not necessarily the calling, right? There will be occasions where we have that opportunity, and I think we should be bold and use that opportunity. But it's not our primary calling to go out there and lecture the world on, on right and wrong. I do think it's our calling to show them where to find right and wrong, and I do think it's our calling to show them the gospel, which can reconcile them to God. 
but church disciplines for the church, peace and coexistence and cohabitation is for the civil realm, you know. I think there's a really thought-provoking lesson there that maybe we should think about. Um, now, granted, different circumstances will call for different things, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say exactly as, as Abraham and Abimelech uh, got along, should we do in America today? Of course, not exactly, but there's a principle here, I think, that's really important. Uh, we should seek peace. And peace with the world doesn't necessarily mean um, that we're going to get them to agree with us on everything and we're going to agree with them on everything. Peace can just mean we agree to live together and to get along and to be a part of the same community together. Peace in the church, though, cannot ever come at the expense of truth and right and righteousness or else the church ceases to be the church. Right? I mean, if that's the case, I mean, the church just becomes the mirror image of the city around us. If we say here, everybody can be a member and you can stay a member, it doesn't matter what you do or what you believe or what you think. Well, how is that different than the Kiwanis Club? I don't understand. Uh, and Jesus didn't die for the Kiwanis Club. He died for the church, you know, and he has a high standard for the church because of that. So let's pray together and uh, thank you all for uh, paying attention to this, I think, very interesting chapter. God keeps his promise and he calls us to be faithful even as he is faithful.